Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and as usual, it's great to have you here with us today. As I frequently say, ratings and reviews of the podcast are extremely helpful and greatly appreciated. They do matter in the rankings of the show, and they help other people to find the podcast. So I would be really grateful if you left me a review over on the Apple Podcast app. All you need to do is to search Grow My Salon Business on the Apple Podcast app, and to leave a review, scroll to the bottom of the page and write a review. Okay, so with that said, on with today's show. My guests on today's podcast are returning guests to the show. They are Philippe Santos and David Brodsky, who are New Jersey-based salon owners. We last spoke in episode 112, where we talked about their growing salon business and the success of their business model. So if you didn't catch up, go back to episode 112 and check it out. Now, during the introduction of episode 112, Philippe and David spoke about how they first met in rehab. And on the back of that comment, after the show, we discussed how it would be a great idea to devote an episode talking about their journey with addiction. Well, this episode is their story. It's a very personal story full of laughs and honesty and a genuine love of life and of each other. Like every podcast I do, it may not be of interest to everybody, but for me, I find David and Philippe's openness and willingness to share their journey, the highs and the lows about how they've turned their lives around as told with honesty, humor, and a humility that is an inspiring example of what's possible. And if it helps just one person, then we have achieved what we set out to. In today's podcast, we will discuss their journey into drugs as teenagers, defining moments on their journey, the turning points where they knew that they had to change, the importance of Narcotics Anonymous for support, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, David Brodsky and Philippe Santos. Hi, Anthony. It's great to be back. What's going on, Anthony? How's everything? It's good. I'm really looking forward to today. It's uh, It's been a, a little while coming. Um we, we did a podcast, as, as, as you know, some of our listeners maybe didn't hear the, the first one. So this isn't really part two. This is, this is a completely different subject matter. But for anyone who didn't listen to episode 112, it was sort of uh, towards the end of last year, I, I did a, a podcast interview with David and Philippe then. And uh, we very much spoke about uh, their business and their business model. And it was a really interesting podcast in itself. But today is a totally different subject. But before we get into what I would, what we're going to talk about today, I, I just want to go back to uh, sort of where we finished up with with episode 112 because you know you, you, you've got this great business model. You're very excited about it. It was going well. I think at the time you had 
four salons and you were about to open an education center. So let's just pick up on that because, you know, the world's been sort of changing and evolving pretty quickly. We're now sort of hopefully we're out of the other end of COVID, fingers crossed. Uh, so what's been happening with you, you guys business-wise since we last spoke? So since we last spoke, um, one of our salons, uh, the room in Verona, uh, moved its locations and we actually quadrupled the size, uh, totally built out a, a new space there. We also opened our education platform, which is called Gang Gang EDU, and, um, which is basically a community for hairstylists to come and get business education, technical education, uh, which has been really great. We've been open about four, three to four months right now. Okay, fantastic. And and well, salon wise, are you like so you've relocated one and expanded it? Uh, what other you know plans? Because as we say, we're in a very sort of volatile market. There's opportunities there for people that have got um, you know the right vision for the future. Uh, any other plans about growth? Yeah, so we're in the middle of closing on a, a group of four salons too. So essentially, doubling our salon size. Uh, we're also under contract for a salon in Miami, too. So like you mentioned uh, about opportunity, um, there's been a lot of opportunity lately. We pivoted really quickly and um, we took advantage of uh, certain situations. There's a there's a generational switch. A lot of salon owners are like, you know what, this is uh, I'm good. You know, I, I've had a good run and it allows us the opportunity to come in and uh, acquire certain uh, salons and uh retrain their staff and give them a new life. Fantastic. So you just said you're about to literally double the size of your business by is it acquiring four separate businesses or one business that's got four salons? It's one business that has four salons. Fantastic. And is that in Jersey as well? Correct. Wow. Okay. So yeah, it's it's like it's interesting. I talk to people all over the world and some of them are seeing like amazing opportunity in front of them. Uh, and other people are going, you know what, hands up. I can't do this any longer. It's just, it's been too tough. So, you know, a lot of that's really just about mindset and, and seeing, you know, that the, the, the silver lining, so to speak. So, okay, well, that's, that's fantastic. And the expansion is now going out of state, you said. You're going to uh, Miami, yeah? Yeah, so we're doing Miami. Uh, a lot of it is, like, we have a great network over there of uh, other stylists and other business owners. Uh, a lot of our friends have restaurants and stuff. And uh, so it's also like a great opportunity to figure out what the logistics are. We have a brand. We want to expand it to Miami. Um, and then we're looking to expand it to other states. And so since we don't live there, uh, it's a great test to see, like, how do we operate it there? How do we run it? What systems? How do we hire over there? How do we brand? Are the clientele the same? We get to run that test right now. Uh, yeah. we're, we, we're pretty good at it. So it's definitely going to. Uh, create some challenges, but more than anything, an opportunity to figure all these things out. Right. Okay. Well, exciting times. Yeah. Okay. So last time, episode 112, we uh, we talked about your business model. And before I do any podcast, we always have a sort of a little bit of a get to know each other. And we have a chat and we did that last time as well. And But then when we started recording and I, I sort of walked right into it, I said, uh, so how did you two meet? Uh, and David said, well, we met in rehab. And it's not, it, you don't usually hear people say that is what I'm saying here, you know. And you were so open and, and frank about that you met in rehab, quite an unusual place for business partners to meet and then, you know, go on to build a, a strong business, which is what you've done. And um, 
And then at the end of that podcast, when you and I were just talking after we'd stopped recording, you happened to say, listen, we'd be really happy to come on and do another podcast and just talk about addiction. And uh, so that's what we're going to focus on today. And um, I, I mean, I, I first of all, I want to thank you for doing that because you know, it's it's sort of it's just there, isn't it? All the time, it's around us. Not just in this industry, but you know, it's 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 just a, a fact of life now. And I'm not just talking illegal drugs. We're talking alcohol. We're talking prescription drugs. Uh, that that it is. It's it's a part of life. And to have people that are so you know open to want to talk about their you know, their experience um, and what they've been through, I think can be uh, a really valuable thing for the people that are listening. So uh, I just want to sort of say to the audience, uh, you know, because I do sometimes say to me, Anthony, you're so blunt and direct. And, and I don't ask anyone anything that they're not comfortable talking about. And I always give them, you know, the opportunity to set any parameters. But I've never actually had anybody say, well, I don't want to talk about this or I don't want to talk about that. Everyone's an open book, which is fantastic. And, and you guys have also been, now look, you can talk about anything. We're, we're very much an open book. So if you're listening to this and you're sort of thinking, God, Anthony's blunt. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's just how I am. If you want to know about something, you've got to ask the right people. So uh, I, I want to start off by thanking you because I think there's a lot of value that you can add. So, um, you know, let's just get straight off on that and, and say, We'll ask you this question. Why, why did you volunteer to talk about this? Why was it, you know, because again, I didn't ask you. You just went, listen, we'd love to do an episode on addiction. So, so David, can I, can I ask you, like, what, what was the, the motive behind volunteering to do this? Like, I truly believe that, like, my, my story, Phil's story, like, our story is our asset. So it doesn't hold the stigma anymore of, like, you know, once you're an addict, you're always an addict and you're just going to be a junkie. And, and now times have changed and uh, there's a lot of opportunity to be able to help people. I know there's like our primary, like my primary purpose is now that I got clean is just to help someone else. If they were in a position that I was in one day, like that whole experience that I went through, the only reason we went through it is so one day we could possibly help someone else. And like, I know you were saying about like being blunt, you know, like all we can do is talk about our experiences. Like I can't give my opinions. I can't give what I think about things. It's just the life I let I led and how I got through it. And like I said before, like if I can help one person by coming on this podcast that says like, you know, like, you know, I would love to get clean one day or I would love to stop drinking one day. You know, maybe that could be the vehicle for them to, you know, get their life together. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let, let's just sort of go, you know, back to the, the the beginning of that. And I just want to ask you this question: What what was your journey into addiction? Like, how does it how does it happen? I mean, I I'm never going to pretend that I'm St. Anthony who's never done anything wrong, you know. Uh, but I've I've never been, you know, a heavy drug user, uh, and you obviously, you know got off the deep end at some point. So just try and give us some understanding of what, what is that journey into that? What does it look like? 
So um, I'll jump in, right? So I, I rem- like for everybody, it's different, right? But somebody will probably identify what, what I said. Like I grew up uh, five minutes out of New York City, New Jersey, uh, an only child. And my parents worked all the time. Uh, they did the best job they could for me, but they also left me alone, right? So I get to hang out in the streets and everything. And I always was looking to fit in, looking for an older brother, looking for a little bit of attention. And it started with acting out in certain ways. Um, My parents put me in Catholic school, thought that was going to do better. And, you know, I I really just wanted some love. I didn't know it at the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I gravitated more into like the skateboarding scene and, um, and and, and like the music scene. And I was in the city all the time. And uh, of course, like drugs played into it. And at first it was fun. Right. I was smoking weed. I was drinking. Everybody loved me because I was partying with them. And it was like some of the best times of my life. But um, there was something inside of me where everybody went home and I didn't want to go home. I wanted the party to continue. And, um, you know, it turned from fun real quick into like chaos. Right. And I didn't even know what an addict was. I didn't know I had a problem. I thought everybody else had a problem around me, but I did know one thing when I did it, like I, I really believed when I was getting high, when I was using that, that was the best version of me because I didn't have another means of expressing myself. I felt. And so, you know, anytime I stopped voluntarily or involuntarily um, getting high, I didn't feel right. Right. I felt awkward. I didn't fit in anymore. Um, and, you know, like, and that was in my teenage years. And then it started, you know, it just like progressed so fast and it was started becoming harder drugs, uh, the wrong people, you know, I started going, uh, I started getting locked up. I started going in and out of jails. And then that itself became a lifestyle, right? I thought it was cool because everybody else around me was getting high, getting locked up. Um, you know, I, w- I was figuring out ways and means to get more, whether it was stealing, I wasn't like a, a violent person, but uh, I, I was stealing stuff. I was always getting caught with drugs. I would do, we would call them tune-ups, right? In and out of rehab, you know, rotate the tires, get an oil change, go back out to society, try to get it together. And, um, you know, before you know it, right? I started like maybe at like 14, 15, next, you know, like I'm 30 and still doing it. Like decades went by and, um, you know, I start getting into the, like, how did I get here? And then the despair was more like, am I going to like, just, I wasn't too worried about dying. Not that I was like, uh, I I was, I was, I was a pussy to, you know what I mean? To do anything. (laughs) Like I wasn't going to kill myself. Right. But I was more scared in terms of like, am I going to just like be that old junkie, like live like this. And I started to like, you know, contemplate certain things. And that's when I started kind of trying to like do something about it, but I'll, I'll let Dave go in and tell a little bit of his story before we go that way. So, yeah. Okay. So like Phil's story and my story are very similar. The details might be a little different. Like I didn't spend years going in and out of jail. Um, I was, I was an addict. So I started, I remember I grew up like, uh, I grew up in a home of hairstylists. I, uh, my grandmother owned hair salon, my mother owned hair, uh, had worked in hair salons. And uh, again, the same kind of thing as Phil, like my dad worked all day. My mom did hair all day. So I was left alone. Um, like to get to the, the exact feeling, there was always something inside of me 
that I wasn't okay with myself. Like I wasn't okay just being with me. And then when I hit, you know, 12, 12 or so, I started smoking weed. And like, that was the, the thing that was like, oh, wow. For the first time, I actually feel okay. And like, there's something we talk about. It was like the progression, right? So, you know, it went to harder and harder drugs. And I just like bounced around with people that did those drugs. Like I never really had friends. I would just bounce around to whoever had what I needed. Like once I started getting into at like 18, I started doing hair and um, I, I worked in hair salons. And of course, not that hair salons introduced me to harder drugs, but I was, you know, going out to bars and clubs. And uh, in that whole scene, I started using harder drugs. Uh, and then at the point when I became I became uh, I started using prescription pills. And then from there, I started, you know, doing harder drugs like heroin and crack and things along those lines. And and the whole time I never not had a job. So I was a little bit of a different addict in the sense that I wasn't out on the street stealing, doing this. I was doing it, but I was doing it to the people I loved. So I was working all day so I could use drugs and keep up my my habit at all times. Um, I, I remember I used to work seven days a week because I couldn't take a day off because then I wouldn't have money for drugs that day. So I would use my tip money to go get high, leave in the middle of clients. Like it was, it was total chaos. And then like when, when the, when I didn't have the opportunity to work behind the chair, like I would steal from my family. I would steal. Like, uh, I remember I used to steal like jewelry from my family and I would take it to the pawn shop and I would never actually sell it. I would, I would pawn it so I can go back and buy it on Friday when I got my check. The only problem was is I always had to get high on Friday. So I never went back to go get the, get my, my family's jewelry. Right. And what started to happen is the thing that happened was every relationship that I valued in my life, like just deteriorated, like my family didn't want me around anymore. I eventually had like really nowhere to live. I was in and out of rehab all the time. Um, I remember the first time I went to rehab, like I went to rehab and I was good for two years, like n not, not meaning I didn't use drugs for two years. I just didn't need to go back to rehab for two years. And then I would start to go to rehab or like um, to clean up and it would happen. Like I would go once a month, once every other month, because my habit would just become so much that I'd have to like get off the streets and, and, and clean up a little bit. Like Phil talked about, I used to call it a dry cleaning. I used to need to get dry cleaned and pressed. So I can get back, get my habit down a little more so I can go out and use. And um, and then like eventually, like the pain just became so great that like I just couldn't like what Phil talked about. I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I started to say a lot like what he said, like, I, I know I'm not going to die. Like, that's not going to be my like that would be the easy way out. Like, I'm going to go on this way the rest of my life, like living in misery, pain, um, guilt, shame, like those were the things that kept me where it was like the guilt and shame of all the things I've done over the past. That was just like, it was like the only way I knew to get rid of it was to keep using drugs. So it was like this vicious cycle that kept going on. Okay. So, you know, you often hear this, this uh, often occasionally you hear this expression, uh, functioning drug addicts. And so that's what you were. Like you were working behind the chair doing clients, you know, like mm -hmm. obviously 
people wouldn't sit in your chair and look at you and think, oh, my God, he's out of it. You, you yeah. were able to function and 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 do here and and still, you know, generate income from from you know from work. Yeah. I was because you know there's a term that we use when you're when you're using drugs, and it's like a lot of times I just had to get right. So like I just had to get my drugs to actually feel normal. Like that yeah, was what yeah. I need to feel normal. If probably if I wasn't using drugs, you'd be like, what's wrong with him? Like, he looks like a mess because he can't even keep it together. Yeah. So like, you know, cause the minute I didn't use drugs, I'd be sick, you know, like it would, I, I was dependent on, on drugs. So, you know, once I was in that groove, it was like, it was the vicious cycle that I talked about, you know, it was like, that's what I had to do to use drugs. So I just became so so good at hiding everything in my life and never being honest about a thing and, and covering up every way that I felt that that was, that was normal for me. Yeah. I'd heard someone say that once before um, on TV, um, you know, that, that he had to get, he had to get high to feel normal. Like if he yeah. wasn't high, it, life went into a downward spiral real quick and he felt terrible, but as soon as he could shoot up, it, it would be he'd be feeling normal again. So, in terms of the the drugs, John, nothing was off the table. No, well, whatever you get your hands on at the time, right? So, yeah, heroin, crack, like meth, whatever it was. Okay, wow. Is there such a thing? I mean, I, I think I know the answer. I just want, want to hear you talk about it. Is there such a thing as addictive personalities that, like, you know, like talk to us about that? Yeah, um, absolutely. We talk about it, right? Uh, we call it the disease of addiction. Um, a lot of people happen to put that on a substance, but it has nothing to do with a substance because I, I tried to get, I, I don't know if it was even clean. I was like, you know what? My problem is I just shoot heroin. If I stop shooting heroin and I go to the bar and drink, like everything's going to be okay. Right. Or uh, if I just get a girlfriend, a job, everything's going to be okay. So like we would, we would substitute all the time, right. One drug for another. Sometimes it's a woman, sometimes it's gambling, sometimes it's anything, but we have the disease of addiction where it's an addictive personality. Um, and so it could go both ways. It could go for us in the beginning. It was a lot of, uh, bad decision, negative decisions. Right. And um, we have to be mindful of that too. Cause you know, the first thing that happens when you put your drug down is automatically your brain is looking for something else that could replace that. Right. The, the dopamine. Um, and, you know, for some people it's like, they go to the gym, some people, you know, they do go into gambling or they go into, into something else. Um, a lot of it. And, and what's crazy is like, when I eventually got clean, I didn't know I had it all my life. I look back on it and I was like, I couldn't stay still in school, right? I always had to do something. I always had to move. I always had to have some sort of a uh, stimulation. I couldn't be, yeah, you know, and, and, and it's different for everybody. But um, once you, you're like aware of it, being aware is phenomenal, but it's not, <laughs> it doesn't do anything. I knew it for a long time, yeah. um, but I know it and you could like, take some decisive action where maybe not like, it doesn't just like go away, but you can like put good things in front of it. So it's an asset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Is this certain? I mean, you you, you touched on this, uh, Dave, before. Is there certain career paths? Obviously, we're hairdressers. Is there certain mm. career paths that are? Um, I mean, if you talk about the music industry, for example, you, you sort of think of, of well, I do. Okay, you know, again, you're going to talk about your own experience. You talk about the music industry, you sort of think that yeah, there's going to be some sort of a, or the advertising industry maybe that there's a there's an element of a cocaine influence there. I might be completely wrong with this sort of stuff, uh, so please excuse me if I if I get anything completely wrong. Don't hesitate to tell me. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to ask you is. Is there certain industries where drugs are more uh, prevalent, more accepted? And obviously, I'm asking about the hairdressing industry. And I suppose the answer is yes, of course there is. So, so tell me about that. I, I believe that there's addiction everywhere, and we see it now. Um, is it higher in, in certain industries? Of course it is. I think the thing about being uh, in the hairdressing community is, you're surrounded by creatives and people kind of on the fringe or, you know, like people that think differently. So uh, it's a bit of that, like, you know, counterculture or, or whatever you want to call it. I think also being a hairstylist lends itself perfectly to an addict, you know, like, like for me, like what attracted me to being a hairstylist, like, you know, like all the things that fit into being an addict is like, I'm going to like, I could pretty much work the hours I want to work, do what I want to do, dress how I want to dress, not really answer to anyone. Um, I get money every day. Like I get tip money every day. So all those things kind of lend itself. I don't think I picked being a hairstylist because I was an addict or vice versa. I just think it, it melt. Like it's like being a bartender and you're uh, like, if you're an addict, you go, be, can become a bartender. It's the same kind of thing. You work nights, you do that. So like, the, the, yes, there is certain industries that definitely lend itself to make it easier to be an addict yeah. or an alcoholic, I think. And, you know, having sort of been through rehab, et cetera, would you find more hairdressers that were, you know, obviously you're going to find more hairdressers than you are librarians. Do you know what I mean? That have got a drug issue. Um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I, I never really ran into hairdressers in rehabs. Really? Like, okay. yeah, like I, maybe one or so, but like, it wasn't like they were rampant in rehab. Like now, do I know hairstylists that are addicts or that have become, you know, uh, got clean after a while. I know a lot of them, but I just never ran into them in rehab. How about you? I know a lot that haven't got to rehab yet. Probably (laughs) need to get that. I want to answer your question though, like in the hair industry. So like I I also own, uh, we also own a tattoo shop Mm. and uh, we also have lots of friends that are, have restaurants. I think the service industry lends itself to it a lot. There's a lot of creatives, like you said. Um, there's a lot of, of art, the music. A lot of those things, you know, mesh together a lot. Um, and, and and I think drugs, it's not 100%. That's what it is. But there is an element of it. To say there's not is, you know, does a disservice too. There is an element of it. Um, I knew grew, growing up, like, you know, I was like, I paid attention to the 27 Club, right, in music. That means, like, all the great uh, rock and roll artists, they would hit 27 years old and they would die. 
Yeah. Uh, and when I was growing up, Kurt Cobain was one of my idols and he died from a heroin overdose. And I wasn't like, oh, God, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. His music is great. Was that the secret that he used to write great music and, and everybody else that passed away from it? So and it, and it was like the Calvin Klein thing was going on with the models and the heroin chic. So how it was almost and I'm not blaming advertising or nothing. Right. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, how I perceived it. So there was a coolness factor behind it too. Um, Cause before that, you know, there was people that were struggling in my town and they would like walk over the bridge to the, you know, to the wrong part of town. And that was like the old school looking junkie that wasn't cool. And I was like, wow, these artists make it look cool. So there was definitely like, for me, that attraction. And, and it still is like, we seem like a resurgence, I think again, where, um, you see it in music, you see it like it's, I don't want to say it's acceptable, but, uh, you know, I, I just see it more is what I'm saying. So it, it is prevalent in our industry to answer your question. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what was your work situation at the time, Philippe? Me? <laughs> stealing cars. <laughs> stealing cars. No, I, I've held jobs. <laughs> the carpenter. Um you know, I, and then like for, there was moments of times where like Dave said, I kind of got my shit together, quote unquote, to get a decent job. So like I lost my license for a long time. I finally got it back and, and I drove trucks for a while. Um, somehow we opened up a tattoo shop um, and, uh, you know, I started to get I started to get into that. But like for me, the drugs like didn't allow me, like I couldn't keep a job for too long. Like I knew where my priorities were. Right. Yeah, it yeah. was like, I needed, and there was also like a lifestyle appeal. Like after a while, like I liked hanging out in the streets. I liked the chaos, the action, the, the, the I didn't like getting locked up, but like the cops chasing, like it was, it was like a movie to me, you know yeah. what I mean? And I was so far in it. I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't grasp it. it and, and I'm going to tell a little bit of like, towards the end. So like I would always find a running partner as they call it. Right. So like a woman, sometimes a friend too, or something. And I was like, cool, we're going to run together. We're going to get high together. We're going to figure out how to get money. You know, somebody works, whatever it is. And, um, and usually it was a woman and, um, you know, I had, I have a 10 year old son now and it was from a previous relationship and it was during when I was running and, um, you know, we were like, cool. We were like the Bonnie and Clyde, we thought, right. With this, this drug romance that we had and, uh, and in it all, you know, she got pregnant and, um, I had my son and like most people would think like you have a son, you know what, it's going to get you cleaned and, you know, you're going to do everything for your kids. And I'm going to be honest with you. And I love my son. He's with me today. Right. But I wasn't, I knew if I didn't get myself right, I would, wouldn't be able to get do anything for for my son. My son was uh, born addicted. He was in the hospital for two months. Um, at that time, I was on 150 milligrams of methadone. That's what they used to kick heroin. But I was doing heroin too, and I was doing coke, right? And my my the the my girlfriend at the time was on Xanax. It, it was just like this crazy shit show, mm. and but I didn't know it. You know what I mean? Like I was in it. But I, I, I didn't know it exactly uh, what it was. And my son, I remember I would go to the hospital. And I thought I was the father of the year because I would go there every day. Of course, after I got high. Right. And I would just end up nodding out there the whole time. And um, 
you know, after a few months, they released my son. Uh, I had um, child services was on top of us. I had all this stuff and I still couldn't get clean. You know, like I had all these blessings. I had all this stuff, but I had the mentality of victimization where it's like, why are they after me? Why are they bothering me? Why does this stuff only happen to me? I, I, I couldn't get clean. But, um, you know, I did get clean that year. It wasn't necessarily my my son. You know what I mean? But like it, it did add to like I was just tired. You know, yeah, yeah. I was like. So how old I mean, are you at that at that point? Is that when you're 30? ish? Yeah, I'm, I'm like 32 at that point. Correct. Right. OK, so. I mean, you, you you said, David, that you used to steal jewelry and stuff from your family and stuff. What what sort of, you know, impact has that had on your your family life now? I mean, do you are you like do you talk to them? Have you got a relationship or? Yeah, we had uh, after I clean like got clean. I got clean at about thirty, just about to be thirty one, and uh, after that, I was able to make up all the, you know, all like make up for all the things that I did, you know, like, yeah. uh, move forward. I, I actually, I was, um, you know, I got to like walk my sister down the aisle. I got to do all these great things. I'm the godfather to her, to her son. Yeah. So like, and that's who I stole the jewelry from. I stole it from my sister. So like our relationship has been like, that's the biggest blessing in recovery and getting clean is that like all the relationships that, are destroyed along the way. You know, they're just like collateral damage. Mm. Um, we get to rebuild them and we get to make new ones and, and, and really surround ourselves with the beautiful people that we get to, you know, uh, it's like, that's the best part of like recovery is that like, now you get to build all these, like, you know, or make up for the, the things that you did that, that gave you all that guilt and shame that kept you using drugs at the time. Yeah. Was there a particular low point for you? Like when you look back at it now, do you go, shit, that was, you know, excuse my yeah. language, that that was uh, yeah. rock bottom? We we talk about, uh, yeah, we, we hit bottoms, right? And that, and that's the thing is, um, you know, there's there were so many of them. I remember I, remember I was uh, at a rehab once and, uh, and I bought a, a, a $500 old cop car on auction. Yeah. And I was like, I was, I was at the bottom. Right. And I was clean. I got out of rehab. I probably lasted 30 days without using drugs. And I, I got a car, I got a job and uh, got a little apartment. Everything was going great until like the obsession and compulsion hit to use drugs. And like, I didn't have any tools to like not do it. Like I wasn't going to meetings and I wasn't surrounding myself, people, people staying clean. And, um, you know, I remember like within like three days I was kicked out of my apartment. I was living out of the back of a old cop car that was like 500 bucks in Florida, like in Miami, it's like in the summer, it's like 105 degrees in the car. And like, that's where I was living and getting ready to go to work every day, like still keeping a job, still trying to keep it together. And like, I could talk about that, like being homeless, living in the back of a car. And like, that wasn't the lowest part in my life. Like the lowest point of my life was, I remember I was living with my wife at the time we were, we were just dating and I was hiding my addiction from her. I told her I cleaned up like 
a million times. And uh, she swore that I was clean. And I was just like, I would have the thing of like, where I just want to do one more. Like, I just want to end it on the right note. Mm -hmm. And like, like, so I would go out like early in the morning. Like that was my MO. I would leave at like six in the morning and I would go out and come back before anything happened. And like, I remember sitting on the toilet bowl in the bathroom, just like getting off and like, and like, just, just, it was nothing more than just like a realization. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, like I can't even stand myself. Like, you know what I mean? Like it used to always be everyone else. Like Phil talked about it, like the victimization, like if you would just get off my back, if I had enough money, if you would stop bothering me, if you had the family I had, you would use. And then like, just coming to the realization is like, uh, I just like, I don't want to live anymore. Like I can't live like this. And like that, at that point, if I talked about like the financial repercussions or like I wasn't going to jail, I wasn't homeless. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was more of just like I had a moment of clarity, a moment to where I could see like I could see myself the way I really was for the first time. And I just like was like, I can't keep doing this. And like, that's cool. Like that was like, all right, cool. I know the idea. Like if you ask me if I was an addict for the past 10 years, I would have been like, yeah, I'm a fucking disaster. You know what I mean? Like, so that wasn't the realization. The decision was like, now it's time. Like now you have to do something about it. So the decision now implies action. Like now you actually have to do something like you've been to rehab enough times. Like I've been to rehab like 15 times. So like, I knew what the program was. It's like, stop using drugs a day at a time, go to a meeting, surround yourself with new friends, stay away from people, places, and things. When you want to use, when you want to use drugs, pick up the phone, call someone that knows like what to do, you know, like these little things, they're simple, you know, they're simple, but like, it starts with like, you just can't use one day at a time. Like we, we believe in complete abstinence and it's like the only way. So we don't drink, you know, we don't take prescription medication. Like we don't smoke weed, even though it might be legal now, you know, like we don't, we don't do those things. It's what we choose not to do because our life is so good now that like, why would you chance it? Yeah. Yeah. That So it's like, you know, you just said so many really powerful things there. The bit that at the beginning about this moment of clarity, it's almost mm-hmm. like, it's almost like it's a gift that, that. Oh, it's a, a gift. A, a, <laughs> higher, a higher power, call it whatever you want, but a higher power, whatever it is, has just given you this insight into yourself and your life. And it, uh, you just said 15 times in rehab. But then it's it's almost like it's like a I don't know I, I you know well it's a higher power yeah it's a gift that someone yeah. somehow gave you for a few seconds to make you realize that this isn't how I want to live and he, and if you don't get that all the rehab in the world on its own doesn't work does it that's you hit the nail on the head yeah like that's yeah that's it let, let me ask you this I just thought of this like. You know, obviously, you know, you were, well, I shouldn't say obviously you were injecting. I know there's different ways to mm-hmm. you know, have drugs. I'm assuming you're injecting. No, we and, and now you won't go anywhere near certain people, places, and things. So is something like having a jab, going for a COVID jab, does that, does that have any sort of negative implications? Yes. 
Is that a trigger in any shape or form, that sort of stuff? So I'll, I'll, I'll answer that a little bit. So there, there is a difference like in the beginning when I, when I first got clean, we're both, we were both intravenous users. Right. Um, and um, so like, I knew for me, like, you know, I get clean. I'm like, maybe I should go get some blood work. Maybe I should get some stuff. I didn't for a while. Cause I was scared. I knew where I came from and I was like, I didn't want to take the risk. So what I did is like, like I go to meetings, right. And I still go to meetings. I talk to other experienced people. We say experience because anybody could give advice. I needed to talk to somebody like you got clean. how do you do it? How do you go to doctors? How do you not take prescriptions? How do you, you know, go to family functions? I didn't know. I was like a baby. Like I was like, I had to relearn all these new skills. And, and, and one of them was like, you know, I, I stayed away a little bit until I was ready. And then when I was ready, like I went with another uh, recovering addict who has some experience. Like I had to ask him, like, like, would you mind coming with me? Cause it, it makes me, I know I shot heroin for like two decades, but like, and I'm tattooed. So you always get like, you're scared of needles. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not scared of needles, but I'm like scared of that feeling again. Like, yeah, yeah. I just didn't want. And, um, you know, moving forward now, like, and it's been over 10 years. Um, does it bother me? Does it stop me for anything? No, but like once in a while I'll get a feeling and, and I'll call Dave, right? That's the power of like having people close to you. I'll call other people like, Hey, I'm feeling this way. I got to go to a doctor's appointment. I know everything's going to be okay. Let me just talk to you a little bit about it. They'll walk me off the ledge and they'll be like, you're going to be okay. And worst case, if I got to go with somebody, uh, I'll go with somebody. And, and that goes into like, uh, if we go to a party or if we go to, you know, my, my, my wife's in recovery too. Um, and, and we're kind of blessed in the sense that like we talk to each other about stuff like that. So, but, but in the beginning, I know for me and, and I know for Dave too, it was really important that we stayed away from all that stuff. Like I wasn't going to a bar, right. I wasn't going in the hood to go say hi to friends. Right. I wasn't surrounding myself with great people, but that just happened to still be struggling too. I had to stay away because yeah. every time I got clean. Like I've done it a bunch of times where like, all right, I'm good. Let me go say hi to uh Flacco up the block. Just see how he's doing. I just want to let him know I'm doing good. Next thing you know, I'm hanging on the corner with Flacco yeah. and I'm just in front of the two years. Yeah. What, what, what was um, your low point, Philippe? What was my low point? I mean, Dave said like he's literally sat on the, on the toilet and he just realized <laughs> like, what am I doing? Like, you know, it was a, a moment of clarity. He said, "Did you did, did you have something like that?" I mean, I know you said you'd been inside, uh, you'd been in yeah. and out of prison. Was it? I mean, there's there's got to be a, a a range of low points, really, doesn't it? Like, what was the I, thing that just made you go, "This isn't who I am anymore. I can't be this person." I knew deep down I wasn't that person. Like, I knew it. There was something in me because I didn't. Somehow I still, I thought I still had certain morals. Like I wasn't violent. I wasn't, you know, it's bullshit, but I had that. But like, but I also knew that like, like the, the jail thing, like, believe it or not, like after you go once or twice, first I come out like, yeah, I made it, you know, like I have like some, some, some stripes on me, but then you get used to it a little bit. Um, everything, unfortunately, everything you get used to, um, you know, your bottoms, when you hit rock bottom, there's like 10 other layers of rock bottom. They get deeper every time. What happened to me is I had this big hole, the spiritual hole, and I didn't call it spiritual back then, but I had this hole like that I couldn't fill with no matter how many drugs, women, money, jobs, like I, I couldn't fill it. 
and it was a feeling of despair and it was a feeling of like I, I was like I used to be like I'm just stuck like there's no like way like I've seen other people having beautiful lives and I was like why me the victimization thing and um, that was my feeling of despair and it lasted for the last few years before I got clean and um you know that that was my low point and one of the blessings was like I started seeing some of my friends because I really didn't believe you could get clean right I started seeing some of my friends that were harder drug users than me and got clean and I was like how the fuck did you get clean there's no way like I, I couldn't believe it I thought they were just bullshitting me like they always did and um you know from from the despair I started to get little granules of hope right I'm like if this guy can do it this guy was like living under a bridge and everything. He was worse than me. There's hope for me. Mm. Right. Um, but like, yeah, the, the whole, the, you know, putting my head down, I couldn't look anybody in the eyes. I had to wear sunglasses all the time because I don't want nobody looking at my eyes. You know, it, it just bundled to get together into that, that big hole of, uh, of, of despair for me. Right. And, and then you went into rehab like I'm assuming voluntarily, uh, had you been in rehab as, again before? Like like uh, uh, Dave said he'd been in 15 times or something. Had you been in multiple times? Yeah, I had a subscription. So it was like <laughs> yearly. And it was a we, the thing with us is like, it's very rare that somebody goes to one rehab and gets it. That's why rehabs are a great business. <laughs> right. attention. Yeah. It's phenomenal. I've been to a bunch of rehabs. Um, I didn't have those moment of clarities, right? The the last time I was on a, a methadone maintenance program for way too long, like 13 years. And, um, but that, that feeling of despair, like I had a moment of clarity. I was going to meetings, right? I was going to like Narcotics Anonymous meetings. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I, I saw a bunch of my friends getting clean and I didn't go through rehab the last time. I, I, I kicked heroin and methadone on, on my own. But I had the willingness this time, right? Mm-hmm. So all the other times, I, like, and I got sick, but all the other times I got so sick and I was like not ready for it. This time I was sick, but it was different because I knew I wanted to get clean more than I wanted to get high. Mm-hmm. It was whatever you want to call it, a higher power, an event, moment of clarity. I wasn't there trying to figure out what it was. I was just so blessed that I had it and that I was in the middle of going to these meetings and I would go twice a day, three times a day. They have meetings all the time. And I would just, I wouldn't want to go home. I was scared to go home. Um, you know, I met people like Dave and others, some people going through the same struggles. I wasn't alone doing it. Other people with multiple years that had a great life. So like, you know, I, I got, that, that's how I got clean. Okay. And so you just touched on that. That's where the two of you met. You know that yeah. you met you met in rehab. You didn't know each other at all. You just happened to meet up in rehab, yeah. So, so just to go, we met in in recovery. So, oh, recovery. not in an actual rehab facility. So, yeah. we met in a meeting. We we go to a twelve step meeting, and uh, and that's where we we met. I think I was there a couple months before Phil walked in his first time, yeah. and, and we we kind of hit it off right away. You know, you're able to tell that you people come from the same place and you identify with each other. Yeah. And I think we just we just kind of we 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 liked each other's energy or we were kind of we hit it off pretty yeah. quick. 
Yeah. You know, we, we, we've sort of talked about higher power, moment of clarity. You know, you were just saying, Philippe, you were saying that there was a hole that needed to be filled. And often when you hear people talk about this stuff, there were often in terms of alcohol, uh, well, and drugs, that what fills the hole is God. It, it wasn't that for you, was it? Or um, was it? it? Is it just, it, you're just not using that word? I mean, you know, I'm not trying to put any words in your mouth. I'm just curious as to, you know, like like when when you were talking before, David, and I said, so it's like you get this gift from this, this where, who from? Like, is it your guardian angel? Is it your deceased grandparent or someone is looking out for you that just, I don't know. I don't know the words for it. I'm just trying to understand what that is, that, you know, that kernel of goodness inside you that says, David, you are making a mess of this. You've got it within you to turn this around. I'm just curious about that as to, as to what filled that hole for you, Philippe. So I, I had a problem with God when I was using and then when I got clean, right? Mm. Uh, I like hearing people say God all the time. I didn't like hearing this because, uh, you know, I, I blame God for a lot of stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in the beginning, I shied away from anybody that said it. It was God or it was this. I was like, here we go again. This bullshit. Um, so, like, what happened was, like, I, I, it didn't matter what it was, whether it was God, a higher power. Uh, for me, it was in the beginning, and it changed, right, was uh, the fellowship, right? The people in the room, one addict helping another. That's what filled up my whole. People cared. They prayed for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have family members and you know, in, in, in different countries and they would go to whatever respective saint and walk on their knees and holy water and all this stuff. And, and I was like, that shit don't work. Right. But at some point something did work. Like somebody did, I do believe like either somebody prayed for me or thought about me or asked. Right. Um, and then I, I had a problem with God. So like I, I used the fellowship in the beginning and of other addicts. And eventually when that, when I got a little bit of a footing, I started searching more for like who my higher power is, right? I need a higher power. I need somebody for the things that I can't explain, um, for, for the goodness in life, for the gratitude, for, for all the blessings. It, Cause what happens is like, I could easily say I did everything. I'm responsible for this. My ego will go in and be like, mm-hmm. there's no God. Of course you put in all the work and you did everything. Um, and so like, I needed that. And it, it gave me the, the spiritual, um balance you know what i mean to like to go in through it and like cool i I, you know i I believe like the words that i say whether it's through prayer or meditation or manifesting things like you say it long enough like it comes to fruition because you start you know giving your brain signals of like this is what you say like i wake up every day and 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 i'm grateful i really am i'm not like you know the the, the Instagram quote grateful, right? Like I really have gratitude. I fill my life up with gratitude every day. And so it's no secret that most of my days are great, you know, because I used to do the opposite. I used to be like, I'd wake up and I'm like, why the fuck did I wake up? Like, this is like, and then everything would be negative. Right. So, you know, it, 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 there's definitely the higher power aspect of it for me. Okay. David, with, with um, when you're coming out of, 
when you're in rehab and you're, you're going, okay, I'm not going to take this anymore, sort of whatever the drugs yeah. are. For a non-addict, i.e. myself, I've never been an addict, never been addicted to, to that. How hard is that? How hard is it to get off crack or heroin or, you know, to just completely I mean, go no more? Yeah. So it's obviously extremely hard because yeah. I tried it so many times before and was never able to do it. Like, is it comparable? Is it comparable to anything as a non-addict to try and understand what it's like? Do you know what I mean? So like if I was to paint a picture, the first like two weeks yeah. are you're like, you're violently ill. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're dealing with the actual physical addiction. Yeah. And so, so that, that of course is hard because you feel horrible and you know, mentally all you need to stop that is just one more. Yeah. And yeah. you're good. You're, yeah. It'll literally go away like that. So like what happens is it starts to go more into your, the mental and the obsession and compulsion. That's where it really gets hard. So after the two weeks of being sick or a week of being sick, whatever it is, like if you're not, if you don't put yourself in situations where you're around people that know that have gotten clean, that are going to meetings, your, your chances are really like low. So all the times that I got clean before was, I just wanted to do it on my own. I was like, I'm going to sit on my couch or I'm going to go to rehab. And then I don't want to go to meetings. I don't want to make any new friends. I don't want to change anything. I just want to stay exactly the way I am, but just not use drugs. And I never was able to, to, to do it. Mm. And the big reason is what Phil was talking about before. It's like, so as soon as you get clean, you realize you have that void, right? You have that hole that's in the middle of you. That was the whole reason why you use drugs in the first place. It's like, I'm just not okay with me being with me. Like I'm a, I'm not all right with it. Like for whatever reason mm. and the void had to get filled. So at first I would fill the void with going to meetings and, you know, it had nothing to do with God and, you know, God, I was the same way, right? Like God just rubbed me the wrong way. Like I had to, I, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish, right? Like I was, you know, my, my dad's Jewish and I went to a Catholic high school and like, I was like a disaster, right? Like all over the place. I never understood. I never felt like I fit in. Then when I came to meetings and people started to say like God and higher power, it was just like, oh, I knew this was like a cult and like it, it wasn't going to work for me because I'm, I'm separating myself. I'm not, I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm pushing it off. So then I had to realize that like, I'm going to have to fill this void. So I started to do with like going to meetings. I started to work out. I started to like eat right. I started to uh, uh, get new friends. So all those things were filling the void just to get me to the next stop. Right. And the next stop then became like, I started to raise my hand in meetings and tell people, get honest. Like honesty is a big part of what we do. So like you might say, like, I can't believe these two are telling like all these stories here. And because that's what keeps us clean is like, we have to be honest about what we do. We have to be open-minded and willing to like 
help the still sick and suffering addict. And like, that's the remedy for us. So like I would start to raise my hand in meetings and let people know where I'm at and that I'm struggling or that I needed help. And then eventually I started to get my understanding uh, of a God. And like, I, I, I choose to call it like the universe and I believe I can tap into it at any time. And that's what works for me. The more important thing is that it's a power that is greater than me because like what Phil said before, like the minute that I think I'm in control and that I'm the smartest guy in the room and that nobody could tell me anything. It's like a short distance back to like reverting to my old behaviors. Yeah. Wow. It's so interesting. Well, let me ask you this. What, what are your thoughts about uh, legalization? I mean, in a lot of American States now, marijuana is legal. It's sort of everywhere. Uh, there's parts of Europe that are, but it's certainly not in the UK. Um, what are your thoughts about that? As as uh, do you recall what what do you refer to yourself as? Former addicts, recovering addicts. What do you what do you? I'm just a run of the mill addict. Right. That's okay. Right. Okay. So <laughs> you, you must have an opinion about about that. Should it have been legalized? Not legalized? Do you think it's good? Is it bad? Is it is it more likely to create, to create more problems than it solves. I'm, I'm curious as to what, what your thoughts are. To be honest with you with legalization of marijuana, like my opinion on it, uh, do I think it's good or bad? I, I don't really know the answer. I, I, I hope it's, I hope it's good, but I'll be honest with you. The biggest thing with that is I could tell how the experience I've had with it. Yeah. Cause like my opinion's not really important. Um, the experiences is I know for me, right? Like I live in a, like a, it's like a condo, like a, a, a building, right. Where there's yeah. like 500 apartments Pumps. or condos yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So like every day now that weed is legalized, I'm in my apartment. I smell everyone smoking weed yeah. like in, in the apartments, you know, everyone. And it's funny. Like I start to say, it's a great reminder for me being an addict because I, I was telling Phil a couple of days ago, I was like, man, it, everyone smokes weed in our apartment. It's starting to smell really good. Like mm. it makes me want to smoke weed. I, yeah, it smells yeah. delicious. You know? well, that's what, that's what I mean. Like, it's like, you can't get away from it now. It's everywhere. I was in the city yesterday. Yeah. I was in the city yesterday. You walk through everyone smoking weed. Like, listen, it is what it is. It, it's like, it's not about me. Right. I just know what I have to do. Like I have to say to Phil, like, you know, all of a sudden this weed smells like great and I kind of want to smoke it. And he might have to remind me of like, remember what happened last time you did that? You have to <laughs> rehab again. You know what I mean? Um, so like, that's what we do. I don't know if Phil has an opinion. I, I do. Right. Um, this is an opinion. <laughs> so I don't believe, and it's because I have experience, like I used to get locked up all the time for having drugs and I wasn't hurt nobody. I was just like, it's a disease of addiction. Right. And uh, I I don't believe like if you do a crime behind it, I get it. I don't believe that you should be, it should be criminalized for you. It affects a lot of people. It affects a lot of families. Uh, I have 18 felonies. Most of them are, are, are drug related. Right. I wasn't a kingpin or nothing like that. It was mainly personal use. Um, I know um, I, I'm, um, I'm born in the, in the U.S., but my parents are Portuguese and we have a home there and we go and they decriminalized it there. Um, and I know the the rates of addiction and everything else went down 
like a lot, right? I also know that when things are um, when things are illegal, right? There's a humongous black market. There's uh, intravenous also. There's a lot more uh, rampant disease, whether it be AIDS, Hep C, or or whatever. Um, I, I I don't have an answer for it. I don't think it should all be like that, but uh, I I do believe the decriminalization of it. I want to believe, right, that it's uh, that it's a good thing. With that being said, though, in my life, I still put boundaries, right, in our salons and everything. What you do at home is what you do at home. You know what I mean? Like I yeah. have no, I have no say in it. I I, I don't want to. Um, I don't. People know that I'm in recovery, and if they don't, and I feel like I need to tell them, I tell them to, because I don't want you know them to get too comfortable smoking blunts in front of me or yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I just, I do a good job of making sure that it's not in my home. It's not in my workplace. It's, you know, like Dave said, people, places, and things. Maybe it's not me going into the projects anymore or something like that, but it's also to make sure that it doesn't come, you know, to, towards me with that. Sure. Okay. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, now you've got this successful business, you employ all these staff, you're, you know, in your forties, whatever, you've got families, you know, um, and in our industry, you employ a lot of young people. And uh, so I'm sort of, I'm sort of trying to get you to talk about the duty of care element, not just that you have or should have or do have, but in our industry, you'll see a lot of young people come into it, you know, 18, 19, 20, whatever. Very impressionable ages. And if you've got people that you look up to who are super creative, who are super cool, that do great work, that are, have a, a high profile in the industry, and they're, you know, doing coke or, or whatever it is they're doing, it has a really big influence on those young people that work for you. So talk to me about that, not just your own personal experience, but how do you sort of see that, that, that people that are in the industry that are surrounded by a lot of young, often very impressionable people uh, who are in a cool industry with music and fashion and yada, 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 it, it's sort of channeling them in a certain direction if you're not careful. You sort of touched on it a minute ago, Phil, where you said, you know, I don't want people to get too comfortable around me thinking that just because marijuana is legal that they can get a, a, a joint out in front of you because it, it's like, hang on, you're bringing this to me. It's a little bit too, you know. Talk to us about that. So, we're, we're real protective in our environment, not just at home or our friends, but in our business too. So I'll give you an example. So like, for example, when we hire people, um, I, I really don't care what they do at home, but if it's blatant and I see they're like, you know what I mean? Like struggling. If I see myself in them and they're just at a point, I'm not going to bring that. You know what I mean? I don't care how great of a hairstylist they are or if they have a humongous following or something. It's not fair to everybody else that works there. So we're, you know, we're very protective in, in, in that sense. And I think people in our area know that, you know, we're in recovery and, and that's just kind of how we do. So we don't get too many of those when it comes to the younger ones. Um, you know, look, a lot of them go out drinking, partying. They do what they do. A lot of them smoke, smoke marijuana, smoke weed. And we, we don't mind. Uh, sometimes it, it's like, 
you know, if they stink like it's like if they smoke cigarettes, if they stink like it, we say something like this. It's not fair to your clients and everybody else. Would you mind if you just wouldn't do that? Um, but we also look look out for certain red flags. What's cool is a lot of people come up to us and talk to us when they do have a problem. And we're like lucky that they do that. Do you know what I mean? That they're that they feel that we're OK to talk to and, you know, that that at least we could give them you know, they'll ask for help. Some of us, you know what I mean? Where when I was working every once in a while, like there was no way I was going to my boss and telling them, Hey, listen, I got this little problem. They'll be like, get the fuck out of here. Right. Um, so the fact that we're, we're open like that, again, I, I, I think it's, it's an asset. Dave, I don't know yeah. if you want to add to that. I think like what, the way you ended it is like we, every person that works with us on our team, they know our story. They know exactly who we are. Like we we're, we're open with it. We believe it's our asset. We're also very like when we hire, when we talk to people, we make sure our goals align. So like we hire, we talked about it the last time or we hire on energy and we hire on like, are your goals where, where we can help you with that? So like, do you want to become an owner of a salon? Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to be involved in profit sharing or education? So with that, we put out a certain energy and that's kind of what we attract. So a lot of times if people are struggling with drugs and, um, or they're already a full-blown addict, like that energy doesn't attract them. And it's pretty quick to, to point out. So like, it wouldn't be our, our, our lives wouldn't be aligned at that point. So we don't really come into the, that often. We do have some people that work for us that are in recovery. Uh, like you said, like um, Phil's wife is, and we have a few employees and like people that are in recovery and not in recovery. I feel like everyone goes through a struggle and it doesn't matter if it's drugs, if it's with food, if it's with gambling, if it's with spending too much money, if it's with the opposite sex or the same sex, whatever it is, like it all comes down to the exact nature, which is your feelings, right? Like if it's like you're being a victim or if you're filling a void or if you're, you know, whatever it might be. And a lot of time, through our story of like getting over drugs one day at a time, not using drugs and being able to change our life, we're able to help them just by sharing our experience with them. So even though it might not be in drugs, it might be with something else, they can identify with the way that we feel. So I believe that's our responsibility is to kind of give our experience and hopefully it helps the one of our teammates. Yeah. Yeah. If you are listening to this and you're a salon owner, and you've got someone on your team who, you know, you love them. They're a great member of your team, blah, blah, blah. But you know or, or suspect that they have a drug issue, a major drug problem. What, what should you do? It's a great question. I actually had someone do it to me. And it, so I worked for a friend at the time and he was a great guy and he just knew I was struggling. And like, he gave me the opportunity to be honest. He was like, you know, I, I see like you're having a hard time. I just want you to know you could be honest with me. And if you need to take time to, to go to a rehab or, or, or to, to take time on yourself, like you, you have that opportunity. 
and just like, I just need you to be honest with me. And, and it did give me the, the ability to be like, yeah, I, I have a drug problem and I probably need to go to rehab. Um, I didn't get clean after that, but it was, it was a very easy way for me to like, get honest with, with him, you know? Um, I think a lot of it is like by example, like they see that we still go to meetings and we're involved in the process of uh, staying clean one day at a time. So like, I think the best thing that we could do or, or like I could speak on our experiences be like, you know, this is how it works for me. You know, I go to a meeting. Why don't you just come to a meeting? Here's where they are. Maybe it'll help you. Um, you know, if you need to talk at any time, like we're here for you. Um, now, someone that owns a salon that maybe doesn't have the same experience for us, there are outlets for that. So like, you know, um, there there's meetings in every city in, in our country and around the world. There There's an avenue for that. So like, you know, they could look at Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, and, and, and that's a great way to start. Yeah. Okay. Um, if, if again, if you're that person, that salon owner, and you know you've got someone who's got a drug issue and maybe you suspect them of stealing from the salon or at very least they're becoming notoriously unreliable as to whether they're going to turn up mm-hmm. um, or maybe you suspect they've been stoned at work, you know, um, I suppose, I suppose what, I'm, what I'm asking you is this, how, how, how many times should you give them the benefit of the doubt? Do you know? Because I'm looking at you now and I'm thinking, like, your story about living in the back of the, of the $500 cop car, uh, it's a slippery slope that just goes down and down and down. Like, like if you're the salon owner and you've got them working for you, on one hand, you don't want them doing what they're doing in the business and whether it's stealing from you or just being unreliable or potentially being out of it at work because it's your business and your business reputation. So do you cut them loose or do you show them that humanity and go, do you know what? I'm, I'm 10, 20 years older than you. I'm, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to send you to recovery. I'm going to give you three months off. I'm going to take you back. How, when do you stop? When do you stop? Because as you alluded to before, uh, David, you'd steal your sister's jewellery. I mean, you know, there's low points. If you'd steal your sister's jewellery, you'd do like you couldn't care less about where you worked, so to speak. You know, there's low points and there's low points. When do you know to pull up the drawbridge and go, you're on your own, mate? Usually you let them stay there until they rob everything from the salon and then you have an eviction notice and your old team disappears. Um, no, look, you bring up a great point. It's actually sometimes a little more challenging for us because we're in recovery and people yeah. think we have the answers for it and yeah. a lot more empty. And it's like, you know, um, I, I have empathy, but I also have a responsibility to the team yeah. and the business not one sole member. With that being said, um, listen, if they steal and it's the first time, we're going to have a conversation, right? We're going to try to figure out why it's there. And if they need help, then cool. We have a bunch of tools. We have a bunch of resources. We get you in a rehab same day just because we have a network. Like we, we can set all that stuff up. The only thing we can't give you is the willingness, right? So if they don't have the willingness or if like we can identify it too, like we know if somebody is like, in the grips of addiction and just is stuck right now and can't get out. 
we're not going to like keep them there because I know I was a tornado. I know Dave was a tornado. And you know, tornadoes don't just stay in one little thing. They wipe everything out. Your team will have a resentment. Everybody will be like, why are you still keeping them there? Why are you doing this? Look what they're doing. Energy gets like that. So it's definitely like to make it really quick, you have to remove them. How you remove them is you either have to let them go or you all, well, firstly, we'd offer them like, hey, do you want help? Mm-hmm. Right. But they have to get removed from the situation. It's not going to change on its own if they're already doing that. Yeah, so yeah. whether it's want to come to a meeting with me, look, are you looking to go to rehab? Are you looking to go to detox? I can help you with that. Are you looking to get away? Cool. I, you know, we, mm-hmm. we could do all that stuff. If a lot of those options are no, and I let them know, like, listen, if you're not going to take one of these options, then unfortunately, we're going to have to let you go. Sure. Okay. Still be just try to help. Yeah. Do you um in this sort of conversation we've been having for the last hour, uh obviously alcohol is illegal and uh prescription drugs are illegal. Uh, uh sorry, illegal again, they're both legal, alcohol and prescription drugs. Um how do you treat them differently? You know, because if someone's got an addiction to prescription drugs or an addiction to alcohol. It's a lot of the same problems that are coming up in terms of how they impact on, on you know, individuals and everyone around them. Uh, is, there, is there any difference that, that you take? Um, so, like, it, it's happened to us before uh, with clients and with team members, and we don't, know, we don't necessarily care about what the substance is, whether it's legal or not. It's the action. Right. Yeah. So if you're blocking out, but you're drinking legal alcohol, I don't give a shit. Right. If you're taking five Xanax a day and you're nodding out at the shampoo bowl. Right. It, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily matter. We base everybody on, on, on their actions. Of course, it is a difficult uh, or, or challenging conversation when if you do have to talk to somebody and they do take prescription drugs and they're like, but my doctor gives it to me. I'm not going to go and say your doctor's an asshole for giving you 100 Xanax a day, right? It's not my job. So, like, we try not to get into those conversations. Again, we try to go more on the help side. Like, look, something's not right because you got to be tricky. You got to be careful with certain things, how you say, too, obviously, in today's day and age. Um, and we, we, we approach all those challenges with love. We don't like beat nobody up. Like, why the fuck are you doing this? Look at you. You're a mess. We don't talk to anybody like that. We approach them with love. Like, Hey, listen, I see you struggling over there. You know, you know, are you tired? Are you, are you this? Do you want to just take the rest of the day off? We, we, you know, we go in it like, like that. And then we have the conversation like, listen, we know it's been happening a few times. Um, have you ever thought about, you know, going here or, or doing this? And you identify like, listen, I've been in that boat too. I know that feeling. You know, so I, I think with love and empathy and, and gratitude, we've had uh, we've had great results with that. Mm, fantastic. Um, okay, so we're, we're we're getting near the end, but I need to ask you a couple of other things here. Um, you've now got this very successful business, and you've you've only touched on the business. You know, like four salons, about to be eight education center. I know you've got a big property portfolio uh, going on. You've got a tattoo shop. God knows what else you got going on there. Um, what, I, what I wanted to ask you about was what impact does all this have on you business-wise? You know, because you've got a record, you've been in and out of jail, blah, blah, blah. Um, in terms of going to the banks, in terms of signing, you know, uh, leases and, you know, dealing with 
you know, manufacturers, all that sort of stuff. Does it, imp- I mean, it does, doesn't it? It impacts on you. What sort of impact does all this stuff have on your life? So I just put, uh, go ahead. I just put everything in my mother's name. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it, I'm going to be a hundred percent honest. It's a positive impact. Like every, really? we, we just, met, we just met with a global company, um, sat down with the CEO, had lunch with them about how we can move forward. And we told him our story and he literally like broke down in tears and was like, I love you guys. Like the story is amazing. Like it's a part of our culture, like people identify with it. So it's, it's actually a bonding experience in the relationships that we build. Um, It has been nothing. I feel like I had more negative impacts of it when I was hiding it. So in the first couple of years of me being clean before I even had a business, mm-hmm. like I was afraid to tell my clients, I was afraid, I was afraid that people would think differently of me. I was afraid that they wouldn't think I was perfect or whatever the, the aspect was. And that, that was more detrimental because people know that you're not being genuine. Like they could feel the fact that like you're hiding something. And the moment that like, I was able to just be honest and be like, this is who I am. If you like it, great. If not, that's okay too. Like I'm fine with it either way, but like, this is who I am. And I owe it to, to tell you who I really am. Mm -hmm. Like at that point is when like all the doors opened up, it was actually the most freeing moment I've ever had in my life. And it continues to be our asset moving forward. Like every person we meet, they, they know our story within a, a day or so. Well, I'll jump in on the legal ramifications, right? Because <laughs> uh, I have more experience in that. So does it create some challenges? Yeah, I'll be exactly where it's at. When it's a lease, when it's PPP, when it's the IDLs, when it's all those those things, right? No TSA pre. I can't go on TSA pre. What's that? Oh, TSA, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Uh, search. <laughs> <laughs> So, but they're luxury problems, right? There's like, I, I, I don't hold it as a crutch anymore, right? Like the, the benefits way uh, outweigh my past. I don't let it define me. Look, I can't get a, uh, I'm in New Jersey, right? It's hard to get a gun anyway. I definitely can't get a gun uh, because of, because of my record, try to expunge it. And it's not like a woe is me victim story, right? Mm-hmm. It is not. Cause what happened is I found the solution in a different form. Like I learned how to get in and I learned how to like figure everything else out with that. Tell them how you got your passport. Oh, (laughs) I got it back. So I got, I got, I was like, it was 2014. So when I got clean, I had a, I had a warrant from Florida, right? I I got high down there. I don't know something I OD'd and next thing you know, I'm in handcuffs. So I thought the smart thing to do down then is when they released me is to run away. So I left Florida in 2005 and I said, I'm never coming back. So, you know, I had a, I had a warrant. It's 2014. So it's like a nine year old warrant. And I'm like, I want to go to Portugal. I want to see my family. How long were you clean at the time? Uh, man, it was like two and a half, three years, something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I had a warrant. So I'm like, cool, I got a little money. Let me call a lawyer. And let me uh, try to get rid of this warrant. And the reason I wanted to get rid of it is because I couldn't get a passport. So they wouldn't give me because I had a warrant, right? And I couldn't go to other states too. I wouldn't get in trouble or locked up in New Jersey. But if I was in Florida, they'd take me. So 
I call and I'm like, hey. And they're like, the only way you could do it is you got to turn yourself in. So I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> They're like, don't worry about it. They, they were really good at the pitch. Don't worry about it. You'll see the judge the same day. You're just locked up. We'll process you. We'll let you out the next day. I'm like, all right, doesn't seem so bad. I, you know, I've done, I've done more time. I'm ready. Um, so I went down there with uh, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time. It was kind of a sealed deal, too. So I go there. I turn myself in. And they're like, look, we're sorry, but the judge is on vacation for a week. So they'll be back next Thursday. And I'm like, there's no way. So now I'm locked up in Florida for a whole week. My, my wife is down there and um, we had to get a lawyer. She bailed. Finally, I got a bail. I got bailed out and they I was able to get my passport. But they're like, listen, this matter still isn't resolved. We need to sentence you. Right. And I'm like, what are you talking? I've been clean for a few years. I'm like been out of jail for a while. And um, this is where the higher power comes in too, right? And, uh, and have an acceptance. So, you know, I had to go back there. It was like June, 2014. I had to go back there like every month. And every month they're like, the first month they're like, look, we're gonna give you uh, 365 a, a year, you know, and good behavior, you're out in nine months. And I'm like, holy, like a whole year. I'm just starting to get my life back together. You're trying to throw me in jail. So I went, um, it got postponed. Then the next time they're like, cool, we're gonna give you six months. They whittled it down. Then I went September. Finally, they're like, cool, we're going to give you 90 days out of those 90 days. You know, you probably have to do 60. So I bought a one way ticket. I went down there by myself, West Palm Beach, Florida. And um, unfortunately, I know how to jail. So I wore thermals because they're like refrigerators. I brought nothing with me. I was ready to go jail. And um, I get it's a new courthouse and there's a new judge. And uh, I'm like. You know, I'm starting to listen to to some of the people in front of me and I hear some people that killed people. And, and I'm just like, I just got caught with some drugs. What's going on here? They're throwing out football numbers. You know, you get seven, you get 14 years. And I'm like, whoa. So, you know, but but I'm ready. Like I go to meetings. I talk to my network. I talk to my friends that sponsor. Do you know what I mean? Like mentally, I'm like, I've accepted it. And I'm like, this is what I got to do. The last part to like get my life back. If this is what I got to do right now, because I don't want to live another 40, 50 years carrying this either, right? This is what I got to do. So, and, and, and I prayed and I'm like, cool. Like I'm ready. I didn't pray for like, get me out of jail or nothing. I'm praying for like, let this process just be good. My attorney came back to me and he's like, listen, I've been working with this new prosecutor and the judge. And, you know, because you came so many times and everything, we're going to give you time served. You could go home today. And I was like, I was blown away. This is, this is like, I don't believe in coincidences. You know what I mean? I believe yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Just, you know, being in that spiritual place, like having a higher power, like really like being full of gratitude and acceptance. And he, he put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, just don't leave yet. We have some paperwork. <laughs> and uh, cause as I'm waiting there, I'm buying my flight and I'm like, I'm getting the fuck out of Florida <laughs> and never coming back. <laughs> and um, you know, it, it was like, it was, it was a beautiful thing. I got to go to Portugal again, which I haven't been there with my son. I brought him for the first time, you know, um, my girlfriend ended up becoming my wife because she stayed through like part of it was like, she stayed with me the whole time. So like, these are the, we're saying this cause like, these are the blessings that we've been afforded the opportunities to pop up where somebody else could be like, see, you're trying to do the right thing. And they come to fuck you again. And it's always, 
you know, like we, we got to like, this is part of our journey. This is like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. What, what, just, hey, man. And the perspective of, of I was going to say my perspective of Phil's situation, like we were friends then. And I remember him, we were in a meeting and he's like, listen, like I knew he was clean. He was doing good. And he's like, I want my passport. So I'm going to have to do like three months in, in jail down in Florida. Mm. And like, I looked at him and I was like, I said, like, I was like, I don't know if I could do that clean. Like, I was like being honest, like, I don't know how you could do that clean. And he was just like, it's what I got to do. It's like, that's what I got to do for the next step. And like that point, that was like a big part in my recovery. I was like, we got to do whatever it takes. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter like what your perception is. It's like, no, that's the next step. That's what you got to do. And like, get through it. And that's how you become stronger. And that's how we stay clean. And it was like, a, it was a great example for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, well that is sort of uh, the wrap up, but I, I just wanted to ask you this one last thing. You first, uh, David, um, if you could relive your life, like knowing, knowing the life you've lived up until now, would you, would you change it? Or would you go, no, that's part of who I am. That's part of my journey. And I've come out the other end of it. Okay. What, like, like what, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Like I wouldn't change a thing. There's not one, you know, horrible thing that I've done or, you know, like situation that I've been through in active addiction that I would change because everything brought me exactly to the place that I am today. Yeah. You know, a big part of, so like not to go too much into the weeds, but like the, the thing about using drugs and then stop using drugs, like there's a reason why we use drugs. So also like while we were using drugs, most of the time I was a complete asshole, self-centered, negative thinking, like I was either a victim or you were my victim. Like that's the way I looked at people. So the take the drugs away. I'm still an asshole. You know what I mean? Like it's not just stop using drugs. And now oh, all of a sudden I turned back into the wholesome young boy. I was supposed to be my whole life. The reality of it is, is like now all the things I've done up until that point brought me to become this person that survived on animalistic behaviors. Like that's the reality. Like I was an animal, like I did whatever I had to do to get one more. Yeah. So now I stopped using drugs and I'm left with all that stuff. Now it's time to like actually do some work. Like I have to like get hooked in with people that are doing the right thing and ask them like, how do I, how do I actually change? Like the reality of it is, is like, you have to change using drugs or I had to change using drugs, but I also had to change every element of my behavior, all my attitudes, actions, and behaviors needed to change. And without that, like I was just going to go back to using drugs or even worse, just be that miserable person that wasn't, you know, going to continue on like existence, which was even worse than using drugs. Mm -hmm. So the reality is I had to change. I had to learn how to become a better person. I had to have acceptance with things. I had to learn how to build relationships. I, I had to learn how to be loving and caring and forgive myself, forgive the people around me. Like 
every action I had need to have, I, it has to have gratitude attached to it. Like all those things I had to learn, which brings me to the person that I am today. And hopefully I'm still evolving into a new person. So like without that detrimental part of my life, I would have never had the catalyst to like bring me to where I am today and to want to continue to get better and become a better person and like take it into business. Like the reason why I believe we, we are the way we are is because we're addicts. Like we have that void that we talk about and it's like, we found a way to channel it. Like we're hustlers at heart. Like we just grind, we grind hard. And like, because we have that, we put it into everything that we do. Like, that's why we want to grow our companies. We want to grow the people around us. We want to build our teams. So like, that's our asset. Um, and like, you know, so in short, like I would never change like one situation in my life. Uh, Phil, how do you feel? I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Anything. <no. laughs> um, you know, unless you've got something to add to that. So uh, I'm dropping the mic. <laughs> You're dropping the mic. Okay. All right. Well, listen, this has been uh, amazing. I've never done a podcast like it before. I doubt I'll never, I'll do one again. Uh, but, you know, your honesty and, uh, yeah, openness and willingness to share absolutely anything and everything. You said right at the beginning before we even started recording that, you know, I said, is there anything you don't want to talk about? You said, no, I go for your life. You know, we're an open book. There's nothing we won't, won't talk about. Uh, and I've, I've learned a lot about, why you're like that and that's all part of the process and that's part of the work and i i think that's amazing so um i'm sure there'll be people listening to this that in varying degrees that will have a huge impact on their life or maybe the people that they know that they surround themselves with their staff or whatever so you know it's like that you know you drop the pebble in the pond and you have no idea how far it ripples out and the people that it impacts on. But um, uh, I, I know that this will have an impact on, on people. And if it has an impact on one person, that's positive. It's a, it's a, it's a good message. Um, where, where can people connect with you on Instagram or other social media channels? So, so they, they can follow me at top underscore Safil. That's C-H-O-P underscore S-A. F-I-L. You'll also see all our businesses and salons there too. And Dave will give his. And I'm um, at burnt, B-U-R-N-T underscore ships, burnt ships burnt on Instagram. Ships. Okay. There's got to be a story behind that. <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> yeah, the next <laughs> Another podcast. Yeah. Well, listen, <laughs> I, I will put those links uh, on our website and in the show notes for today's podcast. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast with David Brodsky and Philippe Santos and you've enjoyed it half as much as I do, uh, then take a screenshot on your phone, share it to your Instagram stories. I think it was a really powerful message. And uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, so to wrap up, David and Philippe, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's been a beautiful experience. Thank you, Anthony, for having us. Greatly appreciate it. Cheers, guys. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.